This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. I feel like I am immersed in the purest vision of wild America. In fact, it's like I've dreamed myself back into another century, to the time when Europeans first made their way out onto the American prairies and witnessed one of the greatest events in all of nature, the migration of the buffalo in herds so immense that they're often described as darkening whole sprawls of land from one horizon to the other. And now here I am on this breezy summer afternoon in Arctic Alaska at the beginning of the 21st century and I'm witnessing an event that calls to mind those great buffalo herds of the past. It's something so remarkable, so prodigiously beautiful, that it hardly seems possible. But it's real enough, as you can hear for yourself. Give this a listen. That's the grunting of caribou, the cows with their calves, perhaps the bulls grunting as well. I'm surrounded by several thousand caribou. This is part of the famous porcupine caribou herd. The total herd presently numbers about 120,000 animals and around me today is what looks to be a pretty darn good percentage of that. The porcupine caribou herd inhabits a huge homeland in the far north of Alaska and then across the border in the neighboring Yukon Territory and the Northwest Territories of Canada. I am on the edge of the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This is an immense, spectacular, utterly wild place. All around me right now is a terrain as gorgeous as you could possibly imagine. I'm on the edge of a broad sweeping valley. It's the foothills of the Brooks Range, the Sadlerochit Mountains. Winding through this valley is the Sadlerochit River. I'm perched right on a hillside here and as I look down the hillside, brilliant green velvety tundra out to that river a couple of miles away. The caribou are arrayed along this side of the river. And then out across the river, the land rises in a series of terraces and ridges and then great, tall, rugged, glaciered mountains in the background. A chilly day, a little bit of a northerly breeze blowing here. And I suppose the temperature is in the low 50s, but the breeze puts a little bit of an edge into it. The caribou are now coming in my direction. There's quite a mob of them. I've got myself kind of snugged into a little patch of very, very low willows and hoping that 
They might walk right up to me, and by golly, if they continue on the course they're going right now, that's likely to happen. Well, the Arctic Refuge encompasses the whole northeast corner of Alaska. It's a big place, almost 20 million acres, about the size of the state of South Carolina. Of course, it's a place that's been prominent in the national news, especially over the past 10 to 15 years. Debates about keeping this area wild are what has been making the news. Should the place remain as it is today, or should it be developed for oil and gas? Oh boy, just a phalanx of caribou coming in my direction now. Some of them are walking, some are trotting, some of them are running along, and then they stop to graze. Oh, another big bunch of them running right down the hill in this direction. The little calves dashing back and forth like puppies. Their coats a light gray color. These are their winter coats, and they're just shedding them. You find as you walk along in the willows, tufts of caribou fur stuck on the edges of the ravines and the bushes and places like that. The big bulls, there's one really close to me right now. In fact, the closest animal is a huge bull. Its antlers in their velvet now as they're growing probably stand about four feet high in a big crescent shape, open to a V if you're looking straight on at the caribou. The bulls, the big ones, seem to be darker color than the light tan cows and younger bulls. As summer comes on, this coat that they're losing right now is going to be replaced by a rich, dark chocolate, short-furred summer coat, very bright white stripe along their flanks, white cape around the shoulders. You can see that coming in on some of these animals. You can probably hear a few of the birds in the background. The prominent one here is called the Smith's Longspur. There are also red poles around, lots of small nesting birds. The Arctic Refuge actually has about 135 species of birds just on the coastal plain. Songbirds, also ducks, swans, loons, shorebirds, gulls, terns, jaegers, ptarmigan. I've been seeing ptarmigan around here. Ravens, hawks, eagles, lots and lots of birds. As I look out toward the north, where the mountains lay down to low ridges and then just relax out onto the north slope, lots of water out there, so it attracts huge numbers of shorebirds and waterfowl. Millions of birds migrate here each year to nest and raise their young. Come from as far away as South America, Northern Africa, Europe, Asia, all the way down to Australia and the Pacific Islands, even Antarctica. So the burgeoning of life here, this great outburst of green and insects, and I've got um, several hundred mosquitoes kind of buzzing around me right now, attract a lot of birds because it's a rich place during the summertime. During the winter it empties out, but it's sort of like a concert hall or a football stadium when no game is being played. Empty during the winter months, some of the caribou stay here, some of the winter birds like the ptarmigan. But then in high summer, like right now, the game is being played, the concert is on, and the place has a tremendous abundance of life. These caribou, oh my goodness, the mass of caribou that is moving straight in my direction phalanx of moving caribou. They seem to be filled with uncontainable restless energy. In fact, that might be what defines caribou above everything else. They just can't seem to keep still. It's as if they have to see what's just ahead or what's across that river or beyond that mountain or out at the far glimmering edge of the rolling tundra. 
watching these caribou now, you can almost feel the power in those legs and shoulders. The closest one is now about 30 yards away. Big bull and a smaller cow fairly close to him. For caribou, it's as if there's no difference between trotting across flat land and loping effortlessly up a steep mountain face. Several caribou running along here, not far away. Now listen, you can hear the clicking of their hooves. Those outsized, rounded, splayed out hooves are great for walking on this spongy tundra. They're good for paddling across swift rivers like the Sadlerochit River down below me or shoveling down through the deep powder snow in the winter for food. This porcupine caribou herd usually spends the winter well south of here. I'm at about 69 degrees latitude. That's way up in the north. They'll move south about 400 miles down into the boreal forests of interior Alaska, cross the border into the Yukon Territory of Canada. Winter down there, then as the days grow longer in April, they'll start coming north up through the Brooks Range, up through the mountains of the Yukon Territory. The pregnant females migrate well ahead of the bulls and the younger animals. Caribou from Alaska and from Canada usually come together out on the tundra of the far northern Yukon Territory in the late spring or early summer. That's because the snow usually melts earlier out there. Then they'll all turn west. That's exactly what these animals did. In late May or early June, the pregnant cows usually cross the border into the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That's the eastern end of the North Slope. And that's where they'll give birth to their calves on their traditional calving grounds. Now this year, there was very deep snow, a very late spring, and so the caribou actually had their calves earlier. That's an unusual thing. They usually wait till they get here. They seem to have an overpowering urge to reach this place. They travel through the late season blizzards. They cross turbulent ice-filled rivers. The only thing that sometimes keeps them from getting here is that deep, persistent snow as we had this year. They're intensely devoted to their calving grounds. There are very important ecological reasons for this. I'll tell you about those in a little bit. These female caribou that are now with their calves became pregnant last fall and carried their developing calves for about nine months. Their birth came very quickly. The cow would lay on her side on the tundra. Her single, tiny, dark, wet calf is born onto that soft mat of tundra plants. The calf weighs about 15 pounds when it's born. Think about that. It's about twice the size of a house cat. It'll stand up almost immediately, the little calf, and it can run within a few days, stay with its mother, can even swim across fast-rushing rivers. These calves right now, out in front of me, two of them, dashing around, round and around in circles. The bigger animals seem to pay no attention to them. Just these outbursts of energy. They just say, hey, look at me. I got legs. I got legs. They're so close to me now, I worry that they will soon hear my voice. I'm afraid of frightening them off. Of course, those little calves are vulnerable to predators, and the main predators on young caribou, mostly wolves, grizzly bears, and golden eagles. Now, this is a major reason why the porcupine caribou are so committed to calving on the narrow coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge, because most of those predators live closer to the mountains, and there are far fewer of them out when you get onto the open, flat tundra. The calves will stick very close to their mother, and if the mother dies or if they get separated and can't find each other, that orphaned calf is doomed because another cow will not adopt. Remember, they only have one calf. 
Within about three weeks, the calves have doubled their weight and they'll start eating plants, as these young caribou calves are doing right now. Oh boy, they are so close to you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight great big bulls are the closest animals to me, but mixed in with them, a bunch of cows and some of those little calves. By late June and early July, these caribou will start to wander around, finding areas where plant foods are most abundant. That's exactly what's going on right now. They focus on eating the highly nutritious plants like cotton grass, also willows, cranberry leaves, buds of the lupins, sedges, mushrooms, other flowering plants. They're so close, I can actually hear them chewing these brittle tundra plants right now. The exceptional lushness and diversity of vegetation in the Arctic Refuge coastal plain is another reason for the porcupine caribou herd's calving grounds being located here. It's very important for maintaining the strength of the nursing cows and for nurturing their rapidly growing calves. They gather in huge congregations. Now, let me tell you this. Along the valley that I'm looking across right now, there are literally tens of thousands of caribou. I look out across the valley. I've got this group of several thousand just below me. Then I look off to my right. There are several thousand more there. Then I look way out toward the north. I can see five, six, ten thousand there. Now I look across the river. Oh, right now there's a great panic. The caribou thousands of them. They were down by the river. Something startled them. Maybe there are wolves down there. Maybe a grizzly bear. They are pouring up like a reversed waterfall up over a very steep embankment. Oh man, now turning back the other way. Now getting another group of them moving. I would say I'm looking at 10,000 caribou all in a single flight pouring out across the tundra out here at the edge of the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Estimated by fish and game biologists just a few days ago that this group, I can't see them all I'm sure, contains about 60,000 caribou. These huge congregations happen especially as the mosquitoes start to emerge, which they're doing right now. They'll come up into tremendous clouds and swarms of mosquitoes that absolutely torment these animals. Then, later in the summer, they'll also be tormented by warble flies that lay eggs on their fur and their larvae burrow down through their skin, and bot flies that literally crawl up into the nose of the caribou and deposit their larvae in the nasal passages. Those huge tight hurts, they give the caribou some relief because at least the animals deep inside a tight milling herd don't have quite as mosquitoes per animal. Caribou also run to escape the bugs. They may not have much chance to eat. They'll lose significant amount of blood. It's extremely difficult for them. They become exhausted. They become depleted. Sometimes they find relief in the open, breezy places along the rivers near the coast, on the remnant snowfields during cool weather, on ice patches. Sometimes they can find some peace on chilly days, on windy days. Well, finally, this short growing season will end. The bugs are going to disappear. The chilly north winds are going to blow down off the Beaufort Sea. And in September or October, these caribou will start heading south again. Not hurried. They feed along the way. They're building up fat. They're growing their dense winter coat. They also mate during the migration. By then, these bulls that are right on in front of me now, about 20 yards away, they're going to have huge antlers. And they'll fight with each other, compete with each other, trying to get a chance to mate with the cows. By early November, these animals will be back down to the south 
in their wintering grounds in the forests here in interior Alaska and across in the Yukon Territory. They'll stay down there for a few months before heading north again. Now here is a measure of how deep the migratory impulse lies inside the caribou. Radio-collared animals from the porcupine herd, tracked by satellite, walk more than 3,000 miles over the course of a year. There is no other terrestrial animal on Earth that travels as great a distance as these animals that are right in front of me. Now I think about it, these big bull caribou that I'm looking at have walked literally several thousand miles over the course of the past year. Oh my goodness, cow caribou with calves so close to me. They've now circled around to my left. They're off to my right. I'm just sure that at some time fairly soon they're going to circle all the way around me. Somebody is going to see me and there's going to be a little bit of a panic. Well, for countless thousands of years, these migrating caribou have been hunted by Inupiaq Eskimos from the North Slope and by Gwich'in people from the interior of Alaska and Canada. Caribou are called Tutu in the Inupiaq language and Vadzai in the Gwich'in language. The biologists have learned that they're hunted at sustainable levels and the predators that take caribou also tend to actually stabilize the caribou population. It's important to have these predators and these human hunters because they keep the population from growing so high that the caribou overbrows their habitat and then their population makes a precipitous decline. So some level of predation is a positive thing for these animals. However, although the population of caribou has fluctuated between maybe 170,000 and 100,000 or less over the years, profound changes that could have a much greater effect on their population might be just ahead for these very caribou that are circling around me right now because of the plans for their calving grounds on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This refuge was established in 1960, then it was enlarged in 1980, and much of it was designated a wilderness area at that time. But the coastal plain, this great flat land out to the north of me, was exempted from wilderness designation because of its potential for oil and gas reserves. Some exploration for oil was done in the 1980s, but today there's very little consensus within the government, within industry, within other interested groups about how much oil and gas actually lie under this area that is the calving grounds for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. In any case, for the past 20 years, there's been an intensifying debate over industrializing the refuge's coastal plain or keeping it protected for the caribou, for the other wildlife, for native subsistence, for wilderness, and for tourism. The Arctic Refuge, in fact, is probably one of the most consequential debates we've ever had in American history over developing or protecting an area of land. In 2005, the United States Congress voted to approve oil exploration and development here on the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge. And so this place might soon be transformed from one of the wildest landscapes in North America into an expansive industrial complex with drilling pads, pipelines, landing strips, roads, support centers, production facilities. This same potential for industrial development also exists for essentially the entire North Slope of Alaska, where exploration and planning are in full swing for development of extensive petrochemical and mineral reserves here. This land, the North Slope of Alaska, is in a patchwork of state, federal, and native ownership. All of it 
is available for oil development outside the Arctic refuge. For example, the huge western area of the North Slope is called the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, or NPRA. In addition to oil and gas, that area in the western part of the North Slope holds the largest coal reserve in all of North America. Much of that is high-quality bituminous coal, and it happens to lie directly beneath the calving grounds for Alaska's largest caribou herd, the Western Arctic herd. There is real potential that much of the North Slope of Alaska is destined to become an industrial complex for oil and gas and coal extraction, with the one possible exception of the part of the North Slope that's inside the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and that's the coastal plain, the area that has been subject to debate for so long. Biologists point out that the coastal plain is the only part of that refuge that's used regularly for calving. So it has the same importance for these very animals that, for example, a spawning stream has for a run of salmon. It may be a small part of their total range, that coastal plain, but it's essential for perpetuating the next generation. Now, it's important to know that female caribou become extremely sensitive during their calving time. They're very wary of any kind of disturbance. That's a protection that's evolved over thousands of years to keep their calves safe from predators. But they're also extremely wary of human activity, people, roads, vehicles, noises, that sort of thing. For example, caribou used to calve in the area around Prudhoe Bay, but they moved away from that area to give birth after the the oil complex was developed there. At Prudhoe Bay, the coastal plain is about a hundred miles wide. It's a big, sprawling place, and so the calving grounds could shift, even though the new areas are less favorable for calving. But here in the Arctic Refuge, the coastal plain is only about 15 miles wide. It's squeezed in between these mountains here and the Beaufort Sea Coast that I can see as I look out toward the north. So development would force the porcupine caribou into areas with poorer vegetation, more predators, calf survival would almost certainly diminish, and nobody knows really how that would affect the future of the porcupine caribou, but the biologists are concerned about it. Now here's something remarkable and unique about the calving grounds. Caribou belong to the deer family. It includes deer, moose, elk. They're the only members in which both the males and the females have antlers. The bull caribou, like the ones that are now so close, these bull caribou are growing their antlers now during the summer and they're going to shed their antlers in the fall after the mating season. They'll shed those antlers when they're far away from the calving grounds. But the female caribou have a very different pattern. They just got done shedding their antlers here in the area where their calves are born. They grow their antlers during the fall and early winter when the bulls are shedding their antlers. They grow those antlers down in the mountains and forest country, far away from the calving grounds. Then they keep those antlers until the early summer. And after their calves are born, these cows shed their antlers right out here on the calving grounds. Now, here's what's amazing about it. Those antlers are gnawed by rodents. You see the antlers laying around here on the tundra. They're all gnawed. Then the rodents' droppings deposit calcium from the antlers onto the tundra, and that calcium becomes incorporated into the soil. The calcium then goes from the soil into the plants that the nursing caribou cows eat, and then into their milk. 
providing an essential nutrient for their rapidly growing calves. Now, think about this. For thousands upon thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of caribou have shed their antlers out here on the tundra. Minerals accumulated far away from the calving grounds have been carried here in the antlers of the female caribou, dropped onto the ground, fertilizing the land that nurtures the next generation of caribou. So it's the same thing as salmon, where the salmon die in the streams, their bodies fertilize the stream that the next generation of salmon grows into. Similarly, these antlers are packets of nutrients carried from the faraway forest, dropped here on the tundra, and now part of the nurturing of the young calves. And speaking of young calves, the nearest cow to me, now perhaps 25 yards away with a calf. Ooh, she's stopping. She's looking right at me. Please stop looking at me. I don't want him to run away. If one caribou takes fright, the whole bunch is going to go. And there are a couple thousand caribou all within very, very close distance. Her little calf actually coming up right under her, trying to nurse. She moves her hind leg a little bit so the calf can get up under there and pushes with its snout. Uh, uh, uh. Nurses, oh, not for long. She walks away. The little calf now dashes off one direction, stops, looks back at its mom. <laughs> Lots of calves around me here. As I look around, I find myself thinking again about Lewis and Clark. And in their journals, those two explorers left vivid accounts of those great American plains. They described the abundant grizzly bears, the wolves, the antelope, the deer. I've seen lots of grizzly bear sign digging for roots right around this area where I'm sitting right now with these caribou. Seen wolf sign, wolf droppings, wolf tracks. Above all, back during the time of Lewis and Clark, what they wrote about most powerfully was the buffalo in their incomprehensible numbers, migrating over those vast, open, windswept stretches of plains. Now, since Lewis and Clark's time, the American plains have been completely transformed. Piece by piece, the land was crisscrossed by roads. It was divided into patchwork fields, ranches, densely settled farms, towns, cities, industries place by place as that happened. The grizzlies, the wolves, and the buffalo disappeared until they were gone everywhere. With them also the once vast wildness vanished. All this happened within just a few human lifetimes. I read the journals of Lewis and Clark as if they were fiction. So completely altered is the world that those men experienced. But amazingly, such a world still exists here on Alaska's North Slope in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I can see that world right now as I look up into the eyes of caribou. They've now bedded down. They're laying down the closest ones about 20 yards away from me. I see it in these calves frolicking in their newly discovered home. I see it in the prolific nesting birds, the Lapland longspurs, the snow buntings, the pintail ducks, the yellow-billed loons, willow ptarmigan, peregrine falcons. I see it as I keep my eyes peeled here for the grizzly bear, the wolf, the wolverine, the muskox. And I see it in the overwhelming immensity of the wildness that surrounds me right here on this day among these caribou. I absolutely cannot find the language to convey the power and elation I feel being in this place right now. It's as if I have opened my own eyes to the world as Lewis and Clark saw it two centuries ago. Here it's tundra rather than prairie. It's caribou rather than buffalo. It's the homeland of the Inupat and Gwich'in rather than the Lakota and Shoshone. 
but it's still a chance to experience the original, unaltered, untrammeled, undiminished, untamed world. And this is why the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is one of the most important questions that we are ever going to face in our lifetimes as inhabitants of the American land. Should this place of the caribou and the wolves and the grizzlies, should it remain for these animals, for the muskox, the bears, the wolves, for the native hunters, for the seekers of wilderness, or should it be transformed to meet our other needs as the land of the buffalo was transformed in the century before us? I'm going to snuggle down here as tight to these willows as I can as the caribou again moving. There are several almost downwind of me. I'm afraid they're going to catch my scent, but most of them completely placid, even though now some not more than 15 yards away. Listen. You can hear their grunting. Several caribou looking at me right now. If I keep perfectly still, maybe they won't be alarmed. Ah, ah, running now. One little bunch of caribou running. Listen to the clicking of their hooves. Oh, just dashing by. Well, I'm going to stay here for a little while. I want to thank you so much for your good company. What a pleasure it is to be here and share this experience with you. I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. Ken Fate is the engineer and producer. Theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters provided by the Skaggs Foundation, the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Jerry Tone and Martha Wyckoff, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, Robert Osborne, and the Leedy Foundation.